Growing up, my church in Orchard Lake, Michigan, had a few regular parts of every single worship service. I knew without fail that we would be singing the same Kyrie, Lord, have mercy upon us. The same Gloria Patri, glory be to the Father. And the same doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Every week. Truth be told, most churches I've attended or have led have used these same pieces of music as service music. It was a special joy for me this year, in fact, when we used these service pieces in Lent. I felt connected, again, to the church of my youth, to the churches I attended in college and seminary, and, to be honest, to the wider tradition of churches using those service pieces week in, week out. There was one other service piece that was not every week, but was instead used whenever appropriate. I love the Presbyterian jargon. Whenever appropriate, throw this in. And that is, blessed be the ties that bind. Blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Like many Presbyterian churches, we at Trinity use this song too when ordaining or installing deacons, ruling elders, and teaching elders. After all, the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love brings us to fellowship, kindred minds, and a similarity to God's own way of love. This is powerful theology packed into a single verse of this hymn. Powerful theology, single verse. And you know what? It's more than just a theology. The very word religion derives from the same root as our word ligament. Ligament, a tie that binds. When we religio, religion, religio, we are proclaiming to be bound again, bound again in ties of love, fellowship, and community, bound again by God's design, bound again together with our neighbor in the pews, as well as our neighbors in Tulsa, Toledo, and Timbuktu. Blessed be the tie that binds, indeed. You see, wherever we are in the world, we all belong to God. In Isaiah, God reminds the world that God is first and last, and there are no gods besides the Holy One alone. When we pray to God in our rather American flavor of English, God hears us and understands us just as much as God understands those praying in Spanish, in Farsi, in Hebrew, even in British English. And yes, I'm sure God is amused by our divisions over a common language. That there is only one God means that when we are bound again in worship, we are bound with people who on the surface may seem very different from us. Maybe they went to the wrong school. Maybe they were born in a far-off country. Or maybe they have made difficult choices and are now living their lives differently than you. Yet God reminds us that it is God who loves us all. 
who pours water on thirsty ground, who makes streams flow through the driest of lands. God's love nurtures us, finds us where we are, and causes us to spring up and out like willows planted by the river or tomatoes planted by the baptismal fonts. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a story about a fertile field that is sown with wheat. But by cover of darkness, an enemy sneaks in and sows some weeds here and there among the field. Tares in the King James, or Darnell, as some people have theorized. And this is a real thing that happened in the ancient Roman world. People did sow these Darnell seeds in wheat fields because they looked so much alike. It was a way to reduce the amount that someone else could make from their farm. It was a mean, mean thing to do. And so in the story, the farmers can't tell the difference between the good wheat and the evil weeds until they're fully grown. Some of the farmers want to start weeding immediately, but the landowner stops them, saying that in removing the weeds, they may accidentally remove the wheat too. These things look so much alike that they can't tell which is which and they want to go and weed? That sounds crazy. Instead, grow together until the harvest when the weed is collected for eating and the weeds... Now, when Jesus is asked to explain this parable, he explains it using apocalyptic language, revelation language, language that says this is about end times, this is about something hidden. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, while the weeds are the children of the devil. The harvesters collect the good wheat and burn the bad weeds. If this sounds troubling to you, you're not alone. St. Augustine famously remarked that the difference between plants and people was that wheat and weeds in the field are always wheat and weeds, but that in the Lord's field, at times, what was grain turns to weeds and vice versa, and no one knows what they will be tomorrow. We're not the only ones to have trouble with this idea of good and evil from the beginning, always good and evil. And it's important to note that no one of Jesus's, no one of Jesus' parables was supposed to tell the whole story. If it were, there would be no need for the other ones, right? You just have the one parable that told the whole story. Done, Bible in one verse. Let's go home. No, that's not at all what happens. Instead, the point is something else. Jesus is telling us something in this parable. Although Matthew's Jesus has a focus on the end, what's going to happen in the end times, the hidden things to come, that apocalyptic vision, that isn't really as useful for us today, not since we're not in the midst of that harvest. Instead, the focus should be more on what is unusual about this parable, namely that the landlord tells the farmers not to weed the field. Rather, good and evil are explicitly to grow together, for if the, field, if, if the field were to be weeded, they would damage the good grain. Even so, we have trouble with this concept. Today, as in days of old, conflicts, police actions, 
Wars upon wars have been fought between people who are bound together by God's love and refuse to recognize it. Countless people have been martyred by others who found them just too different in large ways and in small we seem to try to weed out those who are different in one way or another. It's part of our tendency to behave in groupish ways, to use the words of Jonathan Haidt. That's H-A-I-D-T, not H-A-T-E. I know they sound similar. In his book, The Righteous Mind, he draws a comparison between selfish behavior that benefits an individual, one person, at the expense of their community, and groupish behavior, that benefits a group at the expense of another group or the community. You see, we work through decisions with both the selfish and the groupish mindset. What will benefit me and what will benefit my people? On one level, this kind of thinking works, right? It helps us move forward to make decisions that work well. On another level, this leads to zero-sum games where we think, There's a winner and a loser, and I have to be the winner. My team has to be the winner, and there's no possible third way. In this mindset, we start to weed more fervently with more zealousness. We try to be sure that we can tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat to be kept, the weeds to be discarded except that this parable tells us explicitly, don't do this. Throughout the parable, in both of its tellings, our ferventness, our zealousness to purify the world for God leads us to ripping up good along with whatever evil, and sometimes even more good than whatever perceived evil we saw. We do more damage to the good wheat than to the weeds we're trying to rout out. In the parable, wheat and weeds are indistinguishable until they are fruited, until they're ready to be harvested. One particularly thorough commentator points out that wheat and darnel are most easily distinguished by wheat bowing under the weight of its grain while darnel holds its fruited head high. Darnell is thusly a plant of airheads, writes John Petty. It looks pretty good, in other words, but there's nothing there to weigh it down. Humorous, but still focused on trying to distinguish the good from the evil. We still have this focus problem. Again, Jesus told us to leave that up to God. I think the focus in the parable on good seed and bad and the subsequent interpretation of people as either categorically good or categorically bad is very problematic. This leads us to think about people as you are completely a good person, you are completely a bad person, you are completely a good person, you are completely a bad person. It leads us down this path that we start weeding out people, start hurting each other and claiming that we are doing so in God's name. This stands against so much of what Scripture tells us. As Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we were to go on that alone, we'd all be the evil weeds. There'd be no good wheat out there. My Hebrew and Hebrew Bible professor, Johanna, would 
often remind us of the fallen nature of humanity and Calvin's description thereof through the wonder of this song. Turpitude, moral turpitude, depravity, depravity, inherent baseness, inherent baseness. As an aside, there's nothing like singing that song at 8.30 in the morning on Monday to set the tone for the rest of your week. In a round. The point of this reminder, though, isn't to depress you, which hopefully I haven't done, but to remind you that all of us contain both good and evil. The doctrine of total depravity, Calvin's doctrine of total depravity, means exactly that, that there is no one except Jesus who has lived without sin, that we all contain good and evil. That's why we pray for forgiveness every Sunday because we need to be aware of our sin, to bring it to mind, and to explicitly turn from it and back to God. In fact, though uh, in our translation of the parable, the landlord says, let both, the weeds and the wheat, grow side by side until the harvest. The Greek word that is translated let really is often translated in the Bible, forgive. That word is afete, if you happen to be a Greek scholar and want to look it up later. Afete is usually translated as forgive. Literally, then, the landlord is saying, forgive them both to grow side by side until the harvest. Forgive them both to grow side by side. So I think instead of people being the seeds and thus the wheat, I think there's a different way to see this parable, namely that we are each a field planted with seeds of good and evil. In this way, the problem of wheat turning to weeds and weeds to wheat is avoided. Instead, we all contain both. And God, who waters all the fields of the earth, provides our soul fields with living water. Water that nourishes us completely and truly, that forgives our weeds and brings our wheat ever closer to fruiting in the Holy Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps go to Galatians on that. For if we are fields of grain and both wheat and weeds within, bound together under the same land owner, the one who plowed the land, who provides the living water for our growth and that of our neighbors near and far, instead of trying to weed the soul fields of our neighbors or even our own soul fields, we ought to be seeking ways to celebrate our ties, to expand the network of irrigation of God's living water through the dry lands at home and abroad, those lands that hunger for God's abundant, ever-flowing love. And sometimes that means singing new songs. We are all children of God, all different and all the same. We live and we laugh, we sing and we dance and call each other by name was a song I learned in seminary at my first internship call. And though I didn't grow up with singing it every week, I hear it in the back of my head now every week, reminding us 
Yes, we are all children of the one God. And so, may God's wellspring of love flow through you. May Christ's forgiveness allow you to grow strong and tall. May you always be tied to your neighbors through the Holy Spirit. Amen.